Welcome back to a very special Badge Boys episode where we are going to talk about the 4th of July. Uh, Jason Sheckley is not in studio with us. It's just Robin, which there's nothing just about Robin. We got <laughs> Rockin' Robin Cote and uh, yours truly, Darren Birch. And we're going to talk a little bit about this episode that we're going to play from several years back. In fact, I want to say it was two years back. It was uh, an episode that we had with David Sestokas. And I actually pronounce that right because back in the day i remember asking him like 20 times how do you pronounce your name uh he is a road scholar a author and a uh, expert in many things about the constitution to include uh the uh, creating of the declaration of independence uh which is his book as well as the um the, not just the document but everything going around it and he had such interesting information about the uh this holiday and I was talking to Robin uh, before we went on air, and this holiday sadly will forever be marred and, and, and altered and ruined, quite frankly, to those that were affected, that were present during the Highland Park shooting, the Highland Park massacre, the, the atrocity by one sick puppy with a rifle who went up on the rooftops and shot down aimlessly, cowardly, and his safety shot down at innocent victims and, and killed seven people, um, injured more than, than than a couple of dozens. Uh, the investigation is still unraveling. Uh, we're learning more about him, but I couldn't help but think people are going to think of this holiday with that in mind, with that huge asterisk. And I just, I thought it might be an opportune time to replay this episode because it really did go into the love and the, uh, the love of our forefathers who, who, you know, risked their very lives um, for us to enjoy our freedom and uh, from tyranny. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't let that be forgotten. And I know it, how can it, um, how can it not affect those that were absolutely being, um, tortured their souls and their psyches tortured by the events that unfolded on that fourth of july parade in highland park um and i know you've heard more things as well uh can you weigh in robin yeah um you know the sad part about this thing i mean we we don't even realize the scope of what's happened with everyone there because it, it even if you weren't a person who was directly affected by any of the the shooting everyone there is going to be dealing with trauma this is something that um you know it's going to live on for a long time and i think one of the worst case scenarios i heard through this whole thing is uh, a two-year-old little boy was wandering around they couldn't find who his parents were and it turns out both his mother and father were killed and you know how how is that little boy going to be affected by this, not even, I mean, he's young enough to not really remember the trauma, but they're going to have to tell him what happened. And then all these other people who were running that didn't get hit by shrapnel, didn't get hit by a bullet, they're all traumatized. Everybody, the first, you know, the biggest thing, we always talk about this, Darren, the first responders. Oh my God, they are the ones that run into the fire when everyone is running out. And I can only imagine, I've seen many of the press conferences with, um, the chief and the others that were in charge and just seeing the raw emotion coming from them, we don't realize 
they're in the line of fire as well and they're out there doing their job this is what they signed up for but they don't sign up to see all of this type of stuff i mean you've had this on the show many times about mass shootings it's something that may have existed for many years but it seems like it's becoming more and more you know we see it almost every day we've had several this past week and first responders have to be traumatized with what happened as well i'm so glad you brought that up you brought up two really key points first you're spot on as we absolutely covered the um every time there's one of these mass shootings um there's officers firemen uh, all sorts of first responders that are uh, so adversely affected even uvalde and there's a lot of of um legitimate um, um, condemnation in the way they handled business that day. There's no doubt about it. But regardless, uh, there's officers that did the right thing, who tried to do the right thing, want to do the right thing. And those are absolutely were affected by Uvalde and the, the carnage. The human psyche should not see that kind of carnage. Uh, but I think it's especially appropriate as it deals with Highland Park because as the shooting was raining down and people were scattering like they should and trying to help, um, seek shelter and cover, um, I saw the yellow vest police officers on their bikes mm -hmm. literally still in harm's way looking, trying to figure out where the shots were coming from and remaining in harm's way. So on top of the carnage they saw afterwards, to your point, as well as, um, you know, going into the fire, they were literally, I mean, visually you saw it and yeah. you don't hear a lot about it. We will in, in the time to come, I'm sure. But the other thing that I thought was really important that you said about, you know, how long ago these shootings and how we're seeing them weekly now, and there's no denying that. But I think we need to, you know, step back and realize that mass shootings sadly are not unique to um, our country. Right. One of the very first mass shootings occurred in 1891. I'll say that again. Wow. 1891. It was in Massachusetts. Uh, it was a Boston school. And, and again, this goes to the school shooting scenarios, if you will. And it was a mass shooting. Uh, 14 people were shot um, or 10 or 14. I get the other one mixed up because only a month later uh, in um, April, the first one occurred in March. And again, it's only because that's the known history, you know, recorded history right. only goes back so far, you know, for our country. So in 1891, we do have some, some, um, you know, uh, accounts and, and um, it's been documented. It's kind of like when you think of um, Tombstone and you think of the a gunfight at OK Corral, everyone's like, wow, that's the most, you know, horrific gunfight. Not even close. Not it's just even close. It was, it was only the, the, the one that received most attention because it was most documented. Right. And that's why we know about it. And same thing with the 1891 in um, March. And then April, a month later, in um, New York, uh, a school in New York, uh, a very similar type of um, disgruntled uh, person. All, this one was a little bit older, if I remember right. I could get the, the two mixed up. But one of them was uh, 20s and the other one was like in 40s. And also... Um, I think had a shotgun and used a shotgun and, and, and injured either, again, either 10 or 14, depending on which one uh, it is. And the reason I bring that up is that it, it seemed like after that, every, you know, maybe seven years, there'd be another one. And then the biggest one that a lot of people remember, or maybe not remember, but know of is the um, University of Texas, which was the Dallas um, 
uh, tower. It was the University of Texas, the, the tower. I can't remember his name, but he was a, uh, a Marine, ex-Marine. He had killed his wife. I want to say his mother-in-law or his mother the night before. And then he goes up. I think it was Kurt Russell, if I remember right, who portrayed him in the film. He goes up the tower. And he, he again, very similar to the Highland Park, he indiscriminately is just shooting at moving targets down below. And it took the courage of two cops and a civilian to climb that tower and take him out. But what reason I'm bringing this up isn't to show I have this knowledge of this uh, history, is to show that these things have always occurred, sadly, in our, our culture. And, and, and any of the politicians that are using it now to point fingers, really need to point it themselves because these things have been occurring all along and based on hatred, based on division, based on technology, you know, we'll be honest. Yeah, they, they have a more capability of killing more with, you know, um, with the rounds and a type of ammunition. But we're forgetting about the real issue, which is mental health. Uh, exactly. You know, yeah. I, 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 I one time told someone and it was a, if you will, bad joke. And I do it be facetious rather than a joke. But there's only one thing that all these have in common and it is anger. The other thing, I guess, is there's a second thing everyone have in common is that their index finger. So are we can remove everybody's index finger? No. So we have to look at all the causes. Not, right. not, there's no root cause. There is a sadly many causes and we need to deal with that. Um, I think it's a, a appropriate discussion to have about what um, guns and about uh, the appropriateness of the, um, uh, you know, I've always said there's no reason you should have exploding bullets and there's exploding bullets out there. Mm -hmm. Why, why do we have exploding bullets if, if not to penetrate, um, you know, vests and armor? And that's the only reason. And that seems, um, yeah, it seems like a little overkill. Uh, no pun intended. I mean that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's a great discussion, but I think, um, the main reason for the show today, the, even the discussion we're having now is that we don't let this incident destroy the meaning of Independence Day for our country. I agree. And with that, I hope you enjoy the show. Overlooking Phoenix from high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, a show where two cops talk to the community. I'm retired silent witness Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And on the show, we're going to have the author of Creating the Declaration of Independence, this constitutional litigator, uh, political science major, prosecutor for Cook County, Illinois, wrote an incredible book. So we're going to talk about the backstory to the architects of the Independence of Declaration. And then we're going to end the last segment, my favorite, where I get to listen to Jason Schechterly do his uh, clothes. That inspirational clothes that always makes me cry. Me and too. Right? And then we're going to have stupid suspect stories, heroic headlines, and so much more. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you're going to be entertained. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. If you like the Badge Boys, you'll love their books. Starting with Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story which Arizona Diamondbacks president Derek Hall proclaimed, Jason is an inspiration and his story must be read and shared. 
The professionally written novel is a powerful biography chronicling Jason's gut-wrenching battle to health after being trapped in a fireball that consumed his police car and his high-stakes legal showdown against the Ford Motor Company for their explodingly lethal Crown Victoria police cruisers. Then there's Darren's award-winning Twisted But True book trilogy with close to 100 compelling and funny true crime stories that American detectives with Lieutenant Joe Kenda producer called the perfect blend of humor, heroism, and honor. And retired Colonel Dave Grossman declared, Darren's Twisted But True books are hilarious, deep, and powerful. Each book in the series received the Pinnacle Award for the best true crime book, and a story from book two was featured on an ID Channel television show. And Robin's most recent book, Soul Stirrings, reviewed as an often humorous and spiritually uplifting story of a widow's soul-searching pilgrimage to the afterlife. Darren called it a love story, a ghost story, an investigative story. It's a story like no other. And Robin's first book, Victim No More, where she shares her harrowing experiences with rape and domestic violence as Robin takes the reader on a very personal journey through the morass of abuse and loss, and ultimately, survival. These Badge Boy books should be on everybody's top 10 reading list. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to uh, what I would consider one of our special, special shows. It is the Independence Day special. And for that, we have a great guest. And uh, Jason, I got to ask you, do you do LinkedIn? Do you connect with people on LinkedIn? Oh, very much so. I love LinkedIn. I do too, my friend. Uh, and that's where I met this gentleman. His name is David Sistokis, and he is a prosecutor. And of my 10,000 connections on LinkedIn, I would say 95% are either military, police, prosecutors, uh, we will even accept lawyers. So <laughs> without, I, I couldn't I couldn't help it, David. So without further ado, let me introduce you to David Shostokis. Sir, thank you for being on our show. Darren, Jason, it's really, really great to be with you. But I would uh, caution you just one second that to be a prosecutor, you have to be a lawyer. <laughs> oh, why? don't deflate our balloon. You know, no, they're two different things. We're not gonna, two different things. And we're not going to hold that against you, sir. We're not. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I read your book. And when we met on LinkedIn, I uh, saw you wrote this book. And, I, went, and I'm, I love history. And when I read this book, it has to be the best book on the Declaration of Independence I've ever read. And the reason being is you give such a great backstory to these incredible heroes of our our nation. And sometimes I think we forget uh, with the barbecues and the family get-togethers, which is so nice, and, and the, you know, the fireworks that we celebrate at night. But I think sometimes we forget about these heroes that really li- risked life, liberty, oh, and truly death, defying to defy this British rule. Um, so I thank you for being on the show. And can you just talk a little bit about what made you want to write this book? Well, for about, that's a long backstory by itself. Right. Probably 10, probably 10 years in the making. Uh, but I had uh, done a Constitution Day presentation at a high school in Southwest Florida. And I started out by asking the, this Amer- sophomore American history class what year the country was founded. And the first answer I got was 1700. The next one I got was 1800. Eventually, we zeroed in on 1776, and I then had to say, okay, I thought I'd give them something easier. I said, okay, what day was it? <laughs> and it proved, 
it took a long time until I finally had to go. Uh, hot dogs, hamburgers, barbecue, fireworks, and they go, oh, 4th of July. Uh, and the kids in a sophomore American history class about 10 years ago did not even know that July 4th, 1776 was the country's birthday, if you will. And that sent me on a bit of a journey where I started doing the writing about the Constitution for an online magazine, turned into my own website, and turned into my own radio show that I did for about three years out of Southwest Florida and uh, in Naples and Tampa, that area. And for the show, we did a we did promos uh, during the week because I did the show on the weekends. And we did promos during the week. And during the week, I'd, we'd ask a question like, what did Jefferson mean by all men are created equal? And I'd answer that in 60 seconds as part of the promo. It was called A Minute of Constitutionally Speaking. And so that turned into my first book. I collected 150 uh, essentially questions and answers about the founding documents and put them together into Constitutional Soundbites, which was my first book. And when I got done with that, I found out that there was 140 references to the Declaration of Independence. And I went, oh, my goodness, everybody talks about the Constitution and they swear fealty to it. And you guys took an oath to it. I've taken uh, eight constitutional oaths during the course of my career. And yet, you can't really understand the Constitution if you don't know the Declaration of Independence. And so I said, I've got to try and do something about that. And uh, that the result was uh, creating the Declaration of Independence because, as you said, there's hot dogs and barbecues and there's a lot of nice things that we do on the 4th of July. But unfortunately, like so many, uh, so many holidays, it seems like we've lost the original meaning. Uh, we lost the original meaning of it. And it also seemed to me that the guys that are involved, uh, like Thomas Jefferson, there's the big Jefferson Memorial. People sometimes forget that he was actually flesh and blood, uh, that he actually you know, had hopes and dreams and thoughts and, and, and prayers. Uh, the same thing goes with John Adams, uh, our second president, uh, who was instrumental in, the, in this process. And, and then there's a guy that hardly anybody ever heard of, uh, Richard Henry Lee, uh, you might uh, might know him uh, a little bit better as the uncle of uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, the Confederate general, but uh, Richard Henry Lee was instrumental in this process as well. And and I think that it was it's really important for us to understand what these guys were going through when they were creating this country, uh, when they were doing something that never happened before. It never happened in human history. They turned 10,000 years of human history on its head, plus the dangers that uh, that were involved. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that. But these were flesh and blood people that had hopes and dreams. Uh, Richard Henry Lee had uh, lost his first wife and lost his fingers in a in a hunting accident. And uh, you know, these are these are things that are, I think are important for people to 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 make these folks personalized. Sir, this is Jason. Can you take us back for a second? I'm very interested to hear what is the 60-second definition of all men are created equal? Because there's two things that really come to mind when you when you said that that statement. First of all, in our crazy explosion of political correctness overload right now, it, you're not supposed to even say those terms anymore. But it always astounds me as I get older and you know, I've probably learned 
about Independence Day, I'm pretty sure I knew it was July 4, 1776 when I was <laughs> in kindergarten. So how a sophomore in high school doesn't, doesn't know this is very upsetting. But what is your 60-second definition? What did they mean by that? Well, I can tell you that that's in my first book, Constitutional Soundbites. And if I might get a plug-in, you can, you can find it there. But I, in essence, it's, uh, the important thing is, is that people are equal under the law, and they're supposed to, and they have the opportunity for equal op- opportunity. It's not that uh, everybody has equal skills, equal, equal gifts, but they're supposed to be treated equal under the law. The law is not to uh, indicate that anybody is better or worse than anybody else. And the fact that and there's there's so many these days, of course, they talk about all these separate groups. And, uh, of course, when you make a special accommodation for a group, you're making that group more equal than another group. And that's not what this is supposed to be about. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, it's, it's equality under in the eyes of the law. Everybody's supposed to be treated equally under the law. And they are born... They are born with those inalienable rights that we will talk about, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody has those when they're born. Uh, certainly everybody has those uh, just coming into the world. And I think that's what uh, all men are created equal, because they're all created in the eyes of God. You know, there's uh, 55 words in the Declaration of Independence that, that the book uh, concentrates on, but the last section of the book focuses on eight other words. And those eight other words are the law of nature and of nature's God, which serves to legitimize the United States. We're always talking about the rule of law and not the rule of men. Well, if we're going to have the rule of law and not the rule of men, then there has to be something that is greater than something that is created by men. The Constitution itself is created by men. So there has to be something greater, and Jefferson summed it up when he said that uh, we're going to assume uh, our position among the powers of the world according to the laws of nature and of nature's God. And that is really, really indicative of a couple of things. You know, there has to be, The laws of nature are considered to be immutable, unchangeable, something that can't be changed by man. A legislature, you know, a legislature can go ahead and pass a law and vote that uh, gravity will have no effect within its territory. And, of course, that law doesn't mean anything, right? Because uh, gravity has effect everywhere. It's a a simple natural law. Well, there's a a natural inclination of every human being, of every living thing, to be free, to have liberty, to live unrestrained. And that natural inclination is not something a legislature cannot pass along that says to people, you will not want to be free. And talking and about that, is, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir. When you talk about no, that, that liberty, uh, these architects of the independence, you know, weren't just, you know, incredibly smart, intelligent, intuitive. They're so brave because we talked about for that liberty, they risked so much. Uh, I want to just read a real quick passage of your book. Richard Henry Lee sought recognition from President Hancock. As he did so, Lee one last time reflected upon being hung, mutilated, burned, and beheaded, then put those thoughts aside in the knowledge that no other delegate was in a position to move the Continental Congress towards independence. He rose and placed before Congress the following resolution. 
resolve that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiances to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. What did he risk, sir? Well, at that point in time, at that particular moment, he was committing treason against the king in a very, very public way. Nobody uh, in the Continental Congress, despite the fact that they were literally at war after Bunker Hill and Lexington and Concord, nobody would utter the word independence in public because that was committing treason against the king. And the penalty for committing treason against the king was fourfold. The first element of it was to be dragged through the streets and have your entrails um, cut out. But while you're still alive, then uh, you're supposed to be hung. But then you're supposed to be cut down before you died. And the last thing to do uh, for you, uh, to you, as a result of committing treason against the king was to have your head cut off. And uh, I know you, you, you guys are retired law enforcement, and I've been a prosecutor and inside the justice system for 30 years. And it's really, it, we know that it's pretty rare that for anybody to get the biggest penalty allowed for the crime that they've committed, because sometimes the penalties are really, really harsh and sometimes, uh, and very seldom does somebody get the harshest penalty available. But in this situation, these guys actually knew and personally knew folks that in the aftermath of Bunker Hill had in fact had their heads cut off. One of the uh, one of the fellows that's mentioned prominently in in the book is a fellow by the name of Dr. Joseph Warren. Dr. Warren was in fact John Adams' personal physician. Besides being a John the Adams family's personal physician, he was also a brigadier general in the Massachusetts militia, and he was also a leader in the Massachusetts legislature. And in the aftermath of Bunker Hill, he in fact had his head cut off. So it's not like this was an imaginary. Uh, kind of uh, penalty that sat around in the lawn didn't didn't happen. Uh, these uh, there was uh, there were uh, rebels, if you will, or patriots, depending whether you're English or American, what you would refer to these folks. But they there were people who, in fact, had their heads cut off. Interesting little side story on that that's not in the book is uh, Dr. Warren's head and his body got separated, and it when they eventually found the head. Uh, Paul Revere, as we know, famous for his midnight ride, was also a silversmith, and among that, the things that he did was some dentistry, and he had, in fact, put uh, silver fillings in uh, in Dr. Warren's teeth, and that's how Dr. Warren's head was identified by Paul Revere's fillings in the dental records that uh, Paul Revere kept on, uh, on Dr. Warren, and that was the first example and this is kind of a law enforcement thing, but it was the first example in the whole entire history of the world of forensic dentistry. I, I love that. I That's love outstanding. That. Yeah, you're talking to cops are just right now, you know, I, I got chills, the whole forensic aspect of that. Yeah. And there's so many neat backstories like that you just shared regarding Dr. Warren. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the city tavern? We always know, you know, we picture the uh, Second Continental Congress, you know, and, and the halls and this stately um, place in Philadelphia, but there's a lot of work that was done in a bar, was there not? Oh, yeah. Uh, probably uh, John Adams was fond of saying that most of the work of the Continental Congress actually did get done in the City Tavern in Philadelphia, which, by the way, uh, exists today. It uh, burned down in the 1970s and then was rebuilt from the insurance records. And at the tavern, they have recipes for beer 
that um, were the favorites of Thomas Jefferson and of George Washington. Uh, available, you can get George Washington's ale made to Washington's personal recipe at the City Tavern. Wow, what's the but name of the most- tavern? It's called the City Tavern. Sorry, but I'm going. I'm sorry. Shotgun. I'm running shotgun. I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, it's called it's called the City Tavern. It's in uh, it's in Philadelphia. You can go there and uh, have dinner and drink Jefferson's beer and uh, Washington's ale. And it's a it's a fabulous place. It almost feels ghostly. When I was I actually had been there before I wrote this book, and when I painted the when i was when i was writing the scenes uh, involving uh, jefferson and adams uh, negotiating the uh, format for the declaration of independence i referred uh, to some of the pictures that i'd taken at city tavern uh, i know i do have uh, jefferson walking down the street from independence hall to the tavern and many most of the delegates uh, would go there after uh, after in between city tavern was a uh, was and is a uh, wonderful place in Philadelphia, and I would uh, encourage anybody that's in Philadelphia that's seeing the historical uh, sites to not miss uh, City Tavern as being part of the, uh, as part of their experience in, uh, in Philadelphia. You know, when thinking about Cheers, or everybody knows your name, uh, great bar, uh, iconic, uh, we as, you know, citizens, I can speak for myself, I know about Jason, but, you know, the names that come to mind is Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams. They were real human beings, like you said in the beginning, uh, with frailties and, and so forth. What? Flaws. Thank you. They were human, human. beings. People yeah. forget that. Uh, and one of the things you wrote about in the book is how Benjamin Franklin had gout, real bad gout, as so we missed a lot of the stuff. And uh, how did it fall onto Thomas Jefferson to write this incredible uh, document that created our country? Well, in the first instance, it seemed like many people really didn't want to. Uh, you read uh, Richard Henry Lee's resolution. Um, one of the things, like a lot of governments uh, do after um, Richard Henry Lee made the resolution uh, for independence, the first thing that the Second Continental Congress did was form uh, three committees. They decided, uh, and they tabled it because nobody else wanted to be on record, with the exception of John Adams, nobody else wanted to be on record as uh, going out on that uh, limb of treason with uh, with Richard Henry Lee, so they put off a vote for a month and uh, formed three committees. One had to do with drafting a plan of government for governing the United Colonies in the aftermath of independence. One had to do with creating a sort of a form treaty uh, because they would be seeking alliances with um, for other powers, uh, particularly Spain and France. And the third uh, committee that they created was to uh, write a declaration should they, in fact, uh, vote for independence. And Richard Henry Lee probably would have been one of the, the prime, uh, prime guy to uh, be recruited to write it for a couple of reasons, at the least of which is he proposed it. And I do discuss some of the politics in the book of what was going on, and they really needed somebody from Virginia, which was the largest colony at the time. And so they created a committee of five, and Thomas Jefferson took Richard Henry Lee's place because Richard Henry Lee went back to uh, Richmond, uh, or actually he went back to Williamsburg, Virginia, because his wife was uh, his wife was ill. 
And so they needed another Virginian on the on the committee. And the other four guys, one of them was Ben Franklin, who was extraordinarily ill with his gout. Uh, one of them was uh, John Adams, who was involved in almost everything. He was on about 30 committees uh, in the Second Continental Congress. He was involved in everything that was going on. The other uh, the other two guys were uh, from uh, New York and South Carolina, South Carolina respectively. And uh, Adams didn't think too highly of either of them. They put the guy in New York from New York on there just to uh, just because they again a political uh, political statement that they wanted New York involved. Jefferson was kind of the odd man out. He was kind of left with the task, and Adams had to uh, actually flatter him into doing it. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody really thought. Nobody really thought that it was going to be that big a deal. Uh, the, uh, the declaration, you know, just something to sort of justify what uh, what they were doing from uh, the standpoint of uh, declaring independence. And so I, nobody really wanted the. Uh, nobody really wanted the job. And I Jefferson love it. Was sort of young. He was only thirty three years old. Uh, and so he was the youngest, uh, he was one of the youngest guys there, and uh, the older guys were telling him. And he stood out, know, literally, and, didn't he? He actually physically stood out. Oh, yeah, he was like six foot four, and Adam was <laughs> like five foot seven. Uh, and so when uh, when everybody was having meetings and things like that, he could get Adam's attention because he was because he was six foot four and he had uh, this flaming red hair. <laughs> and so, uh, so he stood out for in a crowd. And but Adams or Jefferson was kind of deferring to him, and this was in fact uh, after a uh, after a meeting in the Congress and just before a uh, break at the City Tavern. Uh, Jefferson said to Adams, he said, you know, well, it's probably about time, you know, you're probably going to start drafting the Declaration. And uh, Adams said to Jefferson, he says, oh no, I don't think uh, I don't think so. I think I think you're going to do it. And Jefferson, but why? He said, well, for a couple of reasons. One of which is. Uh, you write them much better than I do. Uh, you're from Virginia, and we need that. I'm from Massachusetts, and they don't want everybody thinking that we're dragging everybody into the whole mess that's been going on in Massachusetts with Lexington, Concord, et cetera, et cetera. Besides all that, says, you know, people, uh, people think I'm a little bit obnoxious, and they like you. I love it. I love it. Went to his vanity. <laughs> there, in closing, yeah. there's two things I want to ask. One is if you could tell us uh, how you get your book and where it's available, as well as the other book, the uh, one that preceded this. And also uh, tell me who and what did Thomas Jefferson invent? There's something he invented that you talked about in the book that I thought was hilarious when he's contemplating writing this independence. Well, actually, uh, something that everybody probably uses every day to this day, there never had been the equivalent of a swivel chair in the history of mankind. And Jefferson took some of the rollers off the windows uh, that, used to, that were used to raise the windows up and down, and he sawed apart the uh, seat of the chair from the base, installed the rollers on the bottom, and invented the swivel chair. <laughs> I love that story. uh, So so anybody that swivels in their chair in their office these days. I'm doing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Thomas Jefferson to thank for that. And how do we get your book, sir? Creating the Declaration of Independence is on Amazon.com, as is uh, the first book that preceded this, uh, Constitutional Soundbites, which is the 150 uh, questions and answers that covers every section of the Constitution from the preamble through Article 1, through Article 7, through the uh, first 10 amendments. This is sort of a, from the creation of the founding documents, it's sort of a three-act play. You have the Declaration of Independence, you have the Constitution, and then you have the 
the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. And that whole group if, is part of the founding. It's really kind of like a 15, 16 year process. And the only way you can really grasp it all is to kind of get the idea that it's a 15 or 16 year process. And so that kind of is gets covered in constitutional sound bites. And, um, you know, there's, like I said, there's 150 questions. It's, if I might, it's not bad to keep on the on the sink uh, by the bathroom because you can open it up and read one or two of the items because it only takes two or three minutes and put it back down. You know, there's a lot of people that uh, get oh, intimidated by history or by thinking about the Constitution. And one of the one of the great things in the uh, in when I was writing that book was that one of my main editors was uh, my mom who just turned 90. And I would uh, write something and mom goes, no, that's too much like a lawyer, Dave. You know? <laughs> I love moms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my best editor for that was, was mom because I wanted to write a book that was for everybody, not for, uh, not for the legal profession. There's too much, uh, there's too much of that going on. And it's just, uh, and, and if you think about the constitution and declaration of independence, these documents were not written for lawyers. Thank they you. They were written to motivate people I love to go that. out and die for their country, to go out and die for their principles. They and were that's, debated in the taverns. That's the perfect way to end this uh, incredible guest segment. Sir, I wish you the best of the 4th of July. Yeah, I can't thank you enough. That was outstanding. And uh, if you're free November 9th in Chicago, I'd love to meet you in person. And you can come listen to somebody talk about everything to do with not the Constitution and not uh, being a lawyer. If you want to take a little mental break from what you have to do every day, I'd love to meet you. <laughs> I hope that opportunity arises, and we'll look forward to it. And I'm uh, so, so, so blessed to have had the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Well, that wraps it up for this segment of Badge Boys. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Riders Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at ArizonaFallenHeroesMemorialRiders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. You know, that was a great guest, the writer of Creating the Declaration of Independence, David Shostokis. Uh, such a great book. I want to put another plug out for that. And I want to read real quick before I hand this off to Jason for his heroic headlines. A, uh, one of the things that the uh, uh, author was talking about regarding the punishment, this is what our forefathers risked. The punishment of high treason in general is very solemn and terrible. One, that the offender be drawn to the gallows and not be carried or walk, though usually a sledge or hurdle is allowed to preserve the offender from the extreme torment of being dragged on the ground or pavement, which is a complete contrast to point two. Two, that he be hanged by the neck and then cut down alive. Three, that his entrails be taken out and burned while he is yet alive. And four, that his head be cut off. And five, that his body be divided into four parts. And six, that his head and quarters be at the king's disposal. 
That's what our forefathers risked to give us independence. And to that high note, Jason, your heroic that's, headline. Uh, wow. That's pretty amazing. And truly, I am astounded every day at, at how incredibly intelligent and the way they could see that the words that they wrote would last hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, there's still a Supreme Court in place that all they do is strictly adhere to the rules of the Constitution. That's, that's just amazing. I'm with you, brother. That's, that's amazing. So this week's, actually, we are going to do two. And I will start with this one because I have uh, been humbled over the years to have had the term hero spoken to me a few times. And let me tell you, what I'm about to read to you, I would never ever do this <laughs> ever you're my hero brother i would never do this no no you no might for me no no I, after you hear this story you will understand that i am not a hero at all <laughs> this story takes place in lebanon junction kentucky it is not every day that drivers see a police officer in the street directing traffic in a pink tutu but it happened not too long ago Lebanon Junction Police Chief Terry Phillips walks the halls of the city's elementary school every day saying hello to the students who eagerly respond in turn. Before and after school, on this particular Wednesday, Chief Phillips directed the traffic in the tutu attire because of what he told the school's archery class the previous month. If the students could raise their target score up to 200, he would wear a dress or a tutu while outside directing traffic. They did, and he followed through. Quote, I gave them my word, and here I am, Chief Phillips said, standing near the road while adjusting his pink headband. It's embarrassing, but it's a lot of fun. I am working with the kids here. Usually one of the boys in blue, Phillips was pretty in his pink tutu, a family friend suggested the tutu and a last-minute accessory for him and Bullitt County Constable Larry Watkins. She said, well, I will get you a tutu made, and the chief laughed. I thought it was a joke, but I didn't know nothing about the pink headband. Most of those who drove past honked their horns, waved, or took photos. Phillips even got a few whistles for good measure. The costume helped create a bond and trust between Phillips and the students one that he hopes will continue into the future. The kids look up to us and they give us a lot of respect, he said, and we just want to see them achieve well and move forward. It was the smiles on the faces of the students and parents from Phillips that made his job worth it, and it doesn't hurt to have a little fun in the process. Look at what a difference that this guy made. Not only is he the chief of police, but... He inspired them to achieve something that they had not achieved before with a score. He followed through on a promise, and to his credit, the guy wore a pink tutu and a headband and directed traffic. That's quite embarrassing and humiliating, so he is without a doubt my hero for this week. Way to go, the chief of Lebanon, Kentucky. Kudos, buddy. That's so cool. In the interest of Independence Day, 4th of July, uh, and celebrating this great country, I am going to turn over our second, which we never do, a second <laughs> heroic story 
to our wonderful producer, Robin. So Rocket Robin, what do you got? Well, you know, I'm really surprised that we didn't remember this right off the bat, but being that it's Independence Day coming up this week, there were two Phoenix police officers that did something so amazing that it was covered by the media, and it was really cool. These two officers, Mario Lazoya and Matt Morgan, they were on patrol last week, and they saw that this beautiful American flag mural that had been painted on the wall of a community here locally had been defaced with political garbage that was very demeaning, disgusting, bad words. I'm not even going to say what the words are. But these two guys decided, well, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go buy some paint. We're going to fix this. So it was 105 degrees outside. These two guys got together in their uniforms in the blazing Phoenix heat. I don't care if it's 105 or 95. If you're out there right by the pavement by a block wall, I used to do landscaping. I get how hot it is. You're talking 130, 140 degrees in your uniform. And with your bulletproof vest, oh, it's, it's ungodly. These two guys got out there. They cleaned up the debris and repainted this flag for the community. People in the community came out, gave them water, applauded them, honked their horns when they were going by. And neither one of these officers knew the history of the mural till afterwards. They learned that it had been painted a day after 9-11 happened. Now, having served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 99 to 2004, Lazoya said the American flag means everything to him. He served during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. So for these two Phoenix police officers, Mario Lazoya and Matt Morgan, you are our heroes here in our community and across the U.S. Happy Independence Day from all of us to you. You know, I love that. We have these heroes when the pink tutu with a paintbrush, uh, but it's their acts that they're this doing. This is what it's from the officers heart. do every day. Thank you. Every day, Without all day, the fanfare, without wanting yes, the fanfare. No, they don't. We're going to give it to them. Though. And as great as you guys lift us up, uh, Jason and, <laughs> oh, here and we my go. Rock and Robin, you lift us up. And now we're going to take us down to the bowels of humanity. Please do. Uh, with our next stupid suspect. And by the way, I forgo a couple of uh, stupid suspects because these stories were just so good. So I'm just going to do one because there's unfortunately no limit to stupid suspect <laughs> stories. On Sunday, three New York Transit police officers were visiting a Baskin Robbins and a donut shop on Surf Avenue in Coney Island. When you think Coney Island, you know, you think of all these great things and good people and lots of fun and donut stores. For those of you who don't know, the Baskin Robbins is basically a fast food restaurant that serves ice cream, goodies, and so forth. And it's also combined with a Dunkin' Donuts. It just so happens that while these three officers were satisfying their cravings for something sweet, a man who walked into the store to adjust his pants, because you know how the bad guys love to have the, uh, uh, what's that called, hang where they have it down to their knees. Oh, it's, uh, like, it's like what the, the young kids do. They show their underwear. Yeah, exactly. Okay, there's a word for it. I'm, I'm just not hip. <laughs> I'm just either. No pun intended, but I'm not hip. Uh, and when he did adjust his, uh, his, his sagging, that's it, his sagging pants, a gun fell out. And this gun was loaded in front of three cops. Apparently not even noticing this loaded gun had fallen out on the floor. The man continued to stumble in his drunken stupidity around the restaurant. Uh, that's when the officer, seeing the gun on the ground, came quickly to the rescue of the other people in the, in the shop. They grabbed the gun. They secured it. Uh, the man they found was a convicted felon. Can't have a gun if you're a convicted felon. Uh, he was arrested immediately. Uh, after the strange sequence of events, uh, the NYPD Transit Police tweeted, Quote, seriously, this actually happened. 
Um, they went on to say, since we're so glad no one was hurt and the officers took the gun and a repeated felon is off the street. This one is pretty laughable. This is their words, by the way. This is pretty laughable. Well, we guess the suspect won't be laughing when he goes back to prison. So that is my stupid suspect story for today. That's uh, pretty good. You can't have a gun if you're a convicted felon? Yeah, go go <laughs> figure. That, yeah, that, I, I that, guess that's that, a law. Is that new or something? Yeah, I, get, I, he, I, I didn't realize that. This poor gentleman didn't know that in his drunken stupidity. Uh, yeah, well, apparently. That's apparently. And he that's, was stupid enough to go into a donut shop. Don't you know that's where we are? Hello? <laughs> that's where we yeah. go? Yes, if you're going to wear that uniform, I love donuts. And I, <laughs> I had no problem going and getting fresh ones every night with a cup of coffee at 1 a.m. So if you're uh, a bad guy and you I have a loaded gun and you're convicted, yeah, don't, don't go to a donut store. Yeah, come thank on. you. Come on. Come on. <laughs> and now I'm going to hand it over to uh, Jason for truly my favorite, favorite minutes of the entire show. It's the ins- inspirational message from Jason, our clothes. All right. Thank you, Darren. This week, I would like to share a uh, little bit of background on myself that uh, uh, people who have heard me speak, I do share this in my my speeches. uh, And it's something that I posted on uh, my social media. I always keep things as current as I can. There's nothing as powerful as a made up mind. In the clip yesterday, I talked about my handicap, my golf handicap. I have no other handicaps. At the time of my accident, I was a two. This is a game that I could really play, something that I love to do. I was out there every week with my, my dad. This is the one thing after my injuries that I gave up on. The one thing that I said, I mean, I was determined to go back to work. I was determined to overcome and accomplish anything. Golf was the one thing that I said, just forget about it. You're never going to hold on to a skinny little golf club with your eyesight. You're never going to see a ball flying through the blue sky. Well, it turned out that those were not the problems. My attitude about it was the problem. So then I started to work at it around the time I retired, practiced, had great support from uh, Ping, which is based right here in Phoenix, outstanding company. And I did indeed get to playing again. And I actually got my handicap back down to a one. Could play golf better after the accident than I could before. And I had that handicap for about a five-year span. In the interest of transparency, currently, according to the USDA, my handicap is a 5.6, which is not too shabby, but I don't want people thinking out there that I'm still a one. I don't practice. Well, you are getting older. I don't, well, and I, that's true, but I don't (laughs) practice or play nearly as much as I used to uh, just with priorities. But the point is, if you believe in yourself, if you work at something, if you're surrounded by people who love and support you, there is absolutely nothing that you can't accomplish and on a personal side for curiosity's sake my favorite course in the world is Torrey Pines in San Diego my favorite hole is the third hole at the south course and my dream which I tend to dream big is before I die on my bucket list I am going to play Augusta National where the Masters is I've been to the Masters but obviously getting to play there is (laughs) A very rare thing. The point is, believe in yourself. Don't give up. The problem is not the problem. It's your attitude about the problem. Believe in yourself. You can accomplish anything. Thank you, everybody. Darren, Robin, outstanding show. I wish we could do this every single day. Right. But you know what? We will be back here in seven days with an outstanding guest next week that I cannot wait for her to get here oh my god i cannot wait for her to get here and i'm not going to spoil it so god bless you everybody happy independence day happy fourth of july celebrate 
our founding fathers celebrate safely uh, watch some fireworks and enjoy your family thanks everybody batch boys thanks for listening to batch boys <laughs> stories insights guests and true blue humor with retired police sergeant darren birch and retired police officer jason Schechterly. batch boys heard weekly and worldwide on star worldwide networks and all mobile devices <laughs> badge boys <laughs> <laughs>